Good morning. I'm going to be reading from Matthew 22, 34 through 40 in the NSAB. But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. All right, good morning, everybody. So we're at the part of the Gospels where Jesus is under siege, which just goes to show that the politics of personal destruction are old. Jesus is outfoxed, outwitted, outmaneuvered the religious authorities to the point where they're making one last great effort to discount, destroy, confound Jesus in Jerusalem. And this is kind of a funny thing when you're reading through the gospel sequentially because you notice that up until this point, they've had no luck in tripping Jesus up, and yet they continue to go after him time and time again. In fact, every time they try to go after Jesus, it makes them look bad to the people. If you'll remember last week, we talked about Jesus telling a parable, and in the hearing of the Pharisees, he essentially says the leaders of Israel are tenants who have acted like owners, and, and, and they're not producing the fruit that God demands. So God is going to come and take the kingdom out of their hands and give it to people like the Gentiles. And if you remember, the last line of our passage last week was, and the Pharisees perceived that he was talking about them. So what do they do? Well, they get in their little huddle and they decide, okay, we've got to do something to get rid of Jesus. We've got to kill him. We've got to make him look like a fool. We've got to have him say something blasphemous. We've got to do something because he's making us look horrible and all the people love him. And so in this stretch in Matthew 22, you get three consecutive questions that people come to ask Jesus to try to trip him up. The Pharisees ask one, then the Sadducees ask one, and after he shuts down the Sadducees, the Pharisees come back at him with this question. They send the lawyers after him. Now, in this time, the lawyers would be a little bit different than they are now. This would be somebody who is an expert not in the civil law like we would think of or the criminal law, but in the moral law. This is somebody who's coming to Jesus, trying to get him to say something where they could point and say, see, he's not on God's side after all. Well, as you know, this is one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. It, it does not go the, the way the Pharisees want to. Instead, Jesus gives an answer that has come down to us as the greatest and second greatest commandment, right? If it weren't for this verse, what would churches put in their mission statements? Love God, love people. This is the summary of everything that Jesus has taught, everything that has happened up until now, and it comes in this moment where they think they're going to get the best of him. So, as familiar as this passage is, it needs some explanation, right? This is often the way it is with Bible things. Something as simple as love God is 
more complicated than it sounds. What does it mean to love God with your whole heart and soul and mind? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? This morning, I want to back up from this question a little bit and put it in its proper context, because the people who were coming to challenge Jesus were asking about the law. They were asking about the commandments, like the parts of the Bible that you read through and and you think these are just rules after rules after rules. And so the first question that we would need to ask about this passage is, in the words of the great theologian Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? What does love have to do with Leviticus? Why does Jesus bring this up in this passage? Well, part of the reason is, this was a game that rabbis would play with each other. It's like, it's like a parlor conversation game that they would play. What is the weightiest of all the laws? Now, as you know, there were 613 laws in the Old Testament, but that was just the starting point for the Pharisees and the scribes. See, what they would do is they would take a law like honor the Sabbath, and they would say, that, that is far too broad. And they would establish dozens of laws that would keep you from even getting close to breaking the Sabbath. So we're not just talking about 613 laws. We're talking about thousands of laws and this ongoing dispute of what is the most important, what is the weightiest part of the law. And different rabbis would offer different versions of this. This is like when you were in the first century, you would find yourself in a school of different rabbis, and they would all have a little bit different angle on what was the most important part of the law. So so what's happening here is they're trying to get Jesus to take a stance on this common dispute so that they can have something to shoot at. They, They just want Jesus to go out on a limb and declare something so that they can poke holes in it. Well, Jesus, as he always does, he gives them an answer that sums up the whole point of the law and they know it. See, what the, the amazing thing at the end of this story is this, followed by Jesus' question back at them in the following passage, ends the game that the Pharisees are playing because of the wisdom of Jesus. He says, well, the most important part of the law, or, or the part on which the law hangs, he says, is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is making an equivalence here between love and the law, and between law and love. And this is the framework for understanding what Jesus says. You cannot uphold the law if you don't love. And you cannot love unless you understand the law. This is the point that Jesus is making is, what does it mean to, to uphold the law? It means to come from a place where your utmost and your comprehensive love is for God. And, and what does it mean to love God, to approach Him and worship Him and commit to Him as the law describes? So he's unwinding this entire game by basically saying, look, if you really get to the heart of what the law is teaching, you'll understand that you could never have a hope of understanding it without loving God. And maybe uh, an answer that's a little bit more apropos to our day, if you want to know what love is, what love truly is, you must understand what God has decreed about how to worship Him and how to treat other people. In the history of the church, people have commonly parsed out in certain traditions the Ten Commandments into two groups. 
The first four commandments are what it looks like to love God. And the last six commandments are what it looks like to love others. This is the shorthand that Jesus is giving. If you want to know what it looks like to love God, honor Him above all things. Do not worship any idols. Honor His Sabbath. If you want to know what it looks like to other people, don't kill them. Don't steal from them. Don't bear false witness against them. Children, obey your parents. This is an outline of how love and law actually are accomplishing the same thing in Jesus' teaching. So we don't have to imagine what the loving thing to do would be for someone. It's explained to us in the law. Now, this is really different from what they would have understood about the law, but, but it's also pretty different about what we would understand about the law. Because to continue our songs about love, our cultural soundtrack begins with the song, All You Need Is Love. All You Need Is Love, which would lead us to ask, what is love? And maybe the most important question I want to know what love is. And that's what Jesus is going to tell you this morning. The first thing that we need to know about love that Jesus points out in this passage is love commits. Love commits. It is, love is not a passive thing. It is an active thing. It's all about us giving ourselves to God. And this answer that Jesus gives is not going to be novel to the Jews because it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is maybe the most famous part of the Old Testament to the Jews. In fact, I'll read it to you. It is so famous that it has its own name called the Shema. And the reason it's called the Shema is because that's the word that starts this passage. It says, Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you will bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You will write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is love in action. Right? And, and, and the crazy thing is, these people would have recited this passage, faithful Jews would have recited this passage every single day. How embarrassing is it for the Pharisees that they're like, what's the most important part of the law? And Jesus is like, the one you say every single day. The opening of the book of Deuteronomy. See, we, we have the phrase in politics, it's the economy, stupid. This is like Jesus, it's the Shema, stupid. This is the summary. Every Jew knows it. Everybody understands it. Everybody has said it. It doesn't get any more complicated than this. Love God with everything you have. Commit yourself to Him and let it infiltrate every single part of your life. You should talk about it with your kids. You should talk about it at work. You should think about it. You should remind yourself. You should write about it. You should pray about it. You should sing about it. Loving is a full commitment to God and to what he has done now for us through his son Jesus. But for them, it was the promises of God that had come true in the Exodus and later in the kingdom of Israel that they had seen God's faithfulness over and over and over again. The other really important thing about the Shema that Jesus is referring to is right before this happened, God had given Israel their freedom. So if you think about where this fits in their history, they had been slaves in Egypt, and they had cried out to God, and God had answered them, and he had sent plagues and 
miraculous pillars of smoke and fire and split the Red Sea, and he had brought them to this mountain, given them his law, and he said, I'm going to bring you into a land where you'll have plenty to eat, and I will defend you from your foes. And in the midst of that, he says, and what I want you to do in return is to love me. In the book of Deuteronomy, in the first 10 chapters, Israel is commanded to love God 10 times. And it's the prevalent refrain that happens in the beginning of this book, but it's in response to God declaring His love for Israel. Which brings us to an interesting point. Biblical love, love defined as Jesus would define it, is never just I love you. It's always I love you too. It's always a response to what God has first declared and done for us. There's never such a thing as us reaching out to God with our love if it's not a response to God reaching out to us with His love. So it's like when you get married and you propose. When the guy gets down on one knee to propose and he says, I love you, it's not a random response that the woman says, I love you. It's one of two responses you can give in that moment. I love you, yes or no. And every time we say, I love you to God, it's in that context. It's that God has declared his love for us. He has given himself to us. He has promised himself to us. And the response for us is not just, I love you, but I love you too. The commitment that we give to God is based on the fact that God had committed himself to us before we were ever thinking about him, before we were moving towards him, before we were doing anything other than rebelling against him. So, so Jesus lays this out here like, you need to love God with everything, and the implicit message is because God has loved you with everything. In fact, this is going to be demonstrated in Jesus' own life in just a couple of weeks after he teaches this. He is going to lay his life down for his people so that they can commit themselves back to him and say, I love you too. Also, like marriage, one of the things we learn from Jesus is that this kind of love that he's asking us to give to God is not a superficial love. It, it, it's a love that actually grows because of the commitment, right? So any marriage seminar or book that you read that is good will tell you that commitment fuels the love. Love doesn't fuel the commitment. And the same thing is true with Jesus. He, he doesn't just say that he loves his people. He commits to laying his life down, purchasing a people for God, that he is risen and reigning and will fulfill every one of his promises, and that is the basis of his love for you. Now, this is amazing news because nowhere in there is it contingent on your performance. Like, nowhere in there is just like, I'm going to love them until this happens. Or, I will love them this much until they do this, and then you get a new degree of God's love. He has committed to love us without any promise back from us. And what, what Jesus is showing the Pharisees here is love is something that is a little bit different than law, in that God has laid it down. He has offered himself. He is not turning back. And what we should give him in return is a commitment to him in love. Now, the second thing is, love doesn't just commit. In this passage, we learn that, that love desires, right? Love desires. This is a little bit closer to the way that we use the word love. Love is kind of a junk drawer term for us. We use love for a million different things, serious, unserious, things that we're really devoted to, things that we're just like kind of excited about. I mean, but, but love at its heart is a desire for something. 
It's not just an emotion, it's our will and our goal and our passion and our dreams wrapped around something. And if you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, you might realize that there's there's an apparent contradiction between the beginning of the book and the passage that we're in. Because at the beginning of the book, Jesus spends all of his time not talking about love, but talking about righteousness. Righteousness is the theme of the Gospel of Matthew through the first 20 chapters. What does it mean to be righteous before God? But I'll take you back to when we were in the spring talking about the Sermon on the Mount. The word righteousness and the word love, as Jesus uses them, have almost the exact same definition. What does it mean to be righteous? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 20, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes, you have no chance to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes on to say righteousness is like, it's not just do not murder, it's do not hate your brother in your heart. It's not just do not commit adultery, it's don't even lust. Righteousness is a condition of the heart in which we are fully, wholeheartedly throwing our loyalty to Jesus Christ. And, And as we've already talked about, the word for love that Jesus used here is a wholehearted, whole person devotion and desire for God among all things. So Jesus tells us stories that illustrate this, like the rich young ruler who comes and because he has great wealth, he turns away and doesn't follow Jesus. And, and you remember at the beginning of that story, it says in this little throwaway line, Jesus looked at him and loved him. But the rich young ruler doesn't love him in return. He, he loves his wealth more than Jesus. He desires his wealth more than Jesus. But that whole conversation that they have is about righteousness. Lord, what should I do to attain eternal life? What should I do to be right with God? And Jesus' subtle reply to him is, love me, desire me more than anything else. The problem for the rich young ruler was not his riches, as we talked about. It wasn't even his moral goodness. It was a lack of love for God. See, the rich young ruler could obey all the surface level of all the commandments, but he missed the very heart of what it means to obey God, which is to love him. Now, here's a really interesting story. In Mark chapter 12, this same encounter is recorded, but but Mark gives us more details about the dialogue that happens. So if you go to Mark chapter 12, you'll notice the conversation starts out the exact same way. And what happens is he has this lawyer, or this scribe, who's talking with him. And in, in, in this one, one of the scribes comes up and, and hears them disputing with one another. And he answer, seeing that Jesus had answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, this is the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe says to him, this is kind of a bold thing to say to Jesus, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and all the understanding and all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burning, burnt offerings and sacrifices. So listen to what Jesus says to him. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Isn't this strange? 
This guy comes to him. Jesus gives a great, great answer. This guy is cheerleading Jesus on. And instead of Jesus being like, you should be one of my followers, Jesus says, you're almost there. You're almost there. Which leads us to ask a couple of questions. What was it about this guy that got him close to the kingdom of God? Like, why, why is it that he's near to the kingdom? And then, but the second question is even more important. Why is he not in? Why is he not in? He gave, like, the greatest Sunday school answer to Jesus. He, he's applauding Jesus. He's clearly pro-Jesus, but he's not in. What does it take to get in? Well, the things that this guy has going for him are he is interested in the law of God. He's studied in the law of God. He is outwardly righteous. He, he's outwardly in line with what Jesus is doing. In fact, he even applauds certain things that Jesus says, but, but what keeps him from getting in? He has no desire. He has an intellectual love for Jesus. It makes sense to him what Jesus is teaching as a teacher. But he has no sense that he might need him as his Savior. It's interesting, too, that Jesus doesn't tell him what is necessary to get into the kingdom of heaven. This is just, I think, one of the more puzzling dialogues that Jesus has. It's like, you should have said something after this. But he and Jesus both understand. Jesus has been teaching time after time after time after time. There are many who will give credence to what Jesus says, but they don't see any need for him as their Savior. There are many people who love the idea of loving God and loving other people, but who have no sense that what it takes for you to be reunited with God is a Savior who came and died in your place and paid for your sins, and by surrendering your life to Him and desiring Him above all things, you can be saved. You're near to the kingdom of heaven, but you don't desire Jesus. Here's the third thing that we learn in this passage. Not, not only does love commit, it's active, not only does it desire Jesus, it delights in God. It delights in God. Now, this is, this is really the fun part because this is what we usually mean by love. That exuberant feeling that you have when you love someone or something that fills you up and motivates you and gives you all that you need to be consumed by something. Love is delighting in God. And the Bible doesn't exclude this kind of love as our love for God. In fact, the Bible is full of language that talks about delighting in God, being satisfied in Him, finding our worth and, and, and finding our value in Him. The Psalms are one long track from duty to God to delight in God. If you go from Psalm 1 all the way through to Psalm 150, the main trajectory is moving from doing the right thing because it's the right thing to doing what God desires because you love and treasure God. That's the path of the Christian life is not just, okay, I guess I'll do this if it means I get to go to heaven. It's I love Jesus enough that I will give everything for him. I delight in him. There's nothing greater than loving and being loved by God. It's what Jesus talked about earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. Those people are not just motivated economically. They're motivated because they're captured by the beauty and the delight of what they have found. Charles Spurgeon, 19th century British preacher, preached a whole series of sermons on the prodigal son. One of the greatest stories ever told, Jesus tells it in Luke chapter 15. And in one of the sermons, he preaches on just three words in that story. He kissed him. Right? I mean, we got a whole paragraph today of, of things to teach through. 
But Spurgeon preached for 50 minutes on these three words, he kissed him. If you remember in the story, what happens is the younger son who goes away and squanders his inheritance and ruins his life comes back to his father. And as he's coming up to the family road, the father is looking for him and runs out to meet him. And it says when the father gets there, he throws his arms around him and hugs him and he kisses him. Spurgeon says, though he may have been out of breath, he was not out of love. In the sermon, he describes God's delight in us that turns into a delight in him. And he uses this metaphor. It's like a father who comes home from a trip. And if, if you know, you've seen this before, when one parent has been gone and comes home, and they go over to the child, and they hug them, and they kiss them, and they tell them how much they've missed them. Spurgeon's like, it's one of those things where once that happens a few times, you know what happens the next time the parent comes home? The child is the one who runs to the door to see mom and dad after they've been gone. He's like, that's what it's like to be a child of God, is the source of our delight is the same. It's, it's, it's not that we on our own just mustered this up, it's that we have been greeted and welcomed and kissed and hugged so many times that when we see the door start to open, we're the ones who begin to run and throw ourselves around our great God. God's delight in us is what fuels our love and delight in Him. Here's the last thing. What does it look like to love God with everything you have? Well, there's one thing that Jesus defines love with more than anything else in the Gospels. And I wonder if we just sat down and said, what do you think that word is? How many of us would get it right? It's not our favorite word. It's to obey Him. More than any other time in the Gospels when Jesus says, this is what love looks like, He says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Not just commit your life to me, not just desire me, not just delight, but walk in my way. This is something that Jesus brings up over and over and over again. You prove your love by obedience. You prove your love by doing the things that God desires for us. Jesus tells a story right before the passage we're talking about today where he says there are two sons, and the father asks them to do something, like take the trash out or mow the yard or something like that. The first son says that he will do it but then never does. And the second son says that he won't do it, but then later he does. And he says, which of these sons do you think did the will of their father? It's not the one who paid lip service. It's not the one who agreed. It's the one who moved, the one who did it, the one who obeyed. And Jesus, and Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here. It's not all the outer religious stuff that you're doing. It's true obedience from the heart that proves that you love Jesus. The counterintuitive takeaway for us is you might be sitting here being like, okay, love is something very difficult to command, right? We don't, we don't command people to love things in any other area of life. So how can God command me to love something? Well, if you need to stoke the fires of your love for God, here's the first thing to do. Start obeying him and see what changes. Start obeying him. Start doing the things that he says to do and watch how your love and your commitment to him will grow in your heart. So Jesus says, here's the sum of everything. In fact, he says it this way. This is what everything hinges on. Love God with everything you are, every area of your life, all of your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
If you've listened to our So We Speak podcast that we do on Wednesdays, we did this whole series on the Great Awakening. Because I, I think we're in a spot in our country where we are primed with very similar conditions to what happened in the Great Awakening in the middle of the 18th century. And so what we did was we, I looked at John Wesley, George Whitfield, and Jonathan Edwards, three major players in revival. And our goal was basically what was going on? What was God doing in their hearts? What, what was the Spirit doing that brought about this huge revival? And I mean, this was huge. This was 10% of the population in the colonies became Christians in the span of about three years. I mean, amazing transformation by God's Spirit. And, and the question was, what did it take for this to happen? And in the course of researching that and reading through their writings and the accounts of what was going on, I noticed that all three of these guys were motivated and formed and, and influenced by this one little book. There's a book called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. It's by a Scottish pastor named Henry Skugel. And Henry Skugel was an obscure, unknown guy, relatively speaking. He died when he was 28 years old. He wrote what started out as a letter to a friend that got reprinted and reprinted and reprinted in this book, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. In fact, this book was so impactful that George Whitfield, maybe the greatest evangelist, I mean, Billy Graham levels of impact in the world, said, I didn't even know what true religion was until I read this book. And here's the passage that captured these men that lit a fire for renewal and revival in their lives, and it's a definition of what it means to love God. Love for God is a delightful, affectionate awareness of the divine perfection that makes the soul sacrifice itself wholly unto Him, delighting in nothing so much as fellowship and communion with God and being ready to do and to suffer anything for his sake and for his pleasure. What, what I want you to take away this morning is love for God is more than a feeling, but it's not less than a feeling. It's a commitment that starts at a moment in our life that takes a whole lifetime to unpack. Something that is going up and down and up and down through our life to where it will go into a grand crescendo when we get to see Him face to face and we will have perfect love for Him, perfect delight in Him, perfect affection for Him. And God is offering that to you now. The greatest thing for you is to love God. This is not something that God needs for us, like God is going to be better because we love him. We will be better because we love him. Your heart was made to where the greatest affection and delight that we can stand is when we have surrendered and loved God with everything we have. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you've made it so simple for us just give you all of our love. But Father, we know how complicated that can be, how difficult it can be. And so Father, as we're responding to your word this morning, we take this simple command to love you, and we ask you to clear away all the clutter from our hearts and in our minds that would keep us from loving you fully and completely. Lord, help us to delight in you and to be satisfied in you. Help us to be reminded often of your grace for us and your love for us and your affection for us. Lord, give us the courage to sacrifice our own wills for you so that we might walk in love through obeying you. 
Father, we ask this morning as we come to your table that you would pour out your love on us and that we could return it back to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning as we celebrate communion, the way we celebrate communion here is you'll come forward and tear a piece of the bread.